Okay, welcome. This is the EM Talkscast, and uh, I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Ed Ramoska, who is joining me in our attempt to flip the classroom for Journal Club. Nothing more important and more uh, boring at times than Journal Club. So Ed, Ed and I... Ed and I talked about uh, potentially uh, using uh, the podcast to flip the journal club. So we're going to go over a bunch of articles. Um, we, we, um, I'm following Ed's lead, and he chose a very non-controversial topic, which is TPA and stroke. Well, it, I, 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 I try to um, get these journal clubs to go along with the uh, curriculum that the residents sure. are going through. Right. And they're going to be starting a neurology curriculum. And there was a oh, bunch of recent articles coming out about mm-hmm. TPA and stroke treatment, and we're always discussing it. We're yes. always deciding whether we want to do it, right. what we want to do. So it would be a good idea to at least have some literature basis for sure. all of our pontificating. The, the point-counterpoint of, of TPA and stroke. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so the other thing that we're very excited about is we're going to be broadcasting um, the uh, core content little by little to our colleagues in Nigeria. And... I would like to shout out to them, to uh, Professor Pius Iribobe, who is the coordinator of the Accident and Emergency Unit at the University of Benin Teaching Hospital. Uh, hello, Pro- Professor Pius. And Dr. Jeffrey Omarege, who's a family medicine registrar at the University of Benin Teaching Hospital. And we are building a relationship with them. So they, too, are going to uh, enjoy the flip classroom and then join us uh, when we broadcast our journal club a week from Wednesday. And hello, Nigeria. Yes, I'm welcome. Sh- I'm sure the weather is better there than it is here <laughs> since we're expecting snow in the next day. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, uh, we, we've, we've got a little cloudy skies here, a little chill, but we're not expecting piles of snow. Did you watch the Super Bowl? I did. Good commercials, bad commercials. Uh, the commercials were okay. Yeah. I'm, not, oh. I'm not much of a commercial guy. Yeah. I thought the game was good, though, but then I like a defensive game. That was a defensive game, no question about it. I, I know that I, I've heard some things on on talk radio and read some things <laughs> that people were complaining that there wasn't enough scoring and stuff, but Denver's defense was just incredible. I know. Dominant. They Completely just, dominant. You know, it wasn't that the quarterbacks were bad. It was the defense that wouldn't oh. let them do anything. Yeah, it was a defensive battle, that's for sure. It was great. The only, the only commercial worth remembering was the Doritos commercial, the Doritos ultrasound commercial. Oh, yes. Did you see that one? Yes. You got to go back. If you didn't see that one, you got to go back on YouTube and find it. Hilarious. All right, let's dive in. Uh, We have four articles, and um, why don't we start with the article um, in JAMA in uh, in April 2015 of JAMA. Okay. So, um, as as I mentioned before, our, our theme is sort of going to be stroke treatment, and sort of the central theory behind current stroke treatment is that acute ischemic strokes are caused by an occluded cerebral artery. There's an ischemic core that suffers irreversible brain damage, Mm. and then there's a penumbra that surrounds that ischemic core. This is usually moderately ischemic, but it can be salvaged by the expeditious restoration of perfusion, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. It's estimated that about 2 million neurons die for every minute an artery is occluded. This is so, the this is the time is brain phenomena. Exactly. This is exactly <laughs> the time is brain phenomenon. So um, what these authors did, um, I, I I'm terrible at pronouncing names, and I'm not sure I can pronounce this gentleman's last name, Doctor Northwestern. He's from Northwestern. He's, he's from the Department of Neurology in Northwestern. Right. But what they did was a um, Prambakaran. 
a Prabhakar. literature review yep. from 1990-2015. Um, and they looked at all different trials and tried to just sum up where the state of the art is. Mm -hmm. So we'll start off with just IV thrombolysis. Obviously, the NINS trial was the first one in the 1990s. Right. It showed that using IVTPA within three hours, you had a 16% absolute increase in favorable outcome. Right. And um, we remember that outcomes are always measured by the modified Rankin scale. Right. We'll go over that later. That's pretty important. All right, and they usually do that at three months or so. So right. if you had a zero or a one at three months, that was considered a favorable outcome. And what they found was a number needed to treat of a little over six, mm. which basically means if you treat six people with TPA, you're going to have one person, one extra person, having a favorable outcome, either having no disability or only a slight disability, which sounds pretty good. The flip side of that is that there's a risk of cerebral hemorrhage. Um, this was increased to about 6.4% from about 0.6% in the placebo group. So right. the number needed to harm in that case is a little over 17. So right. again, if we treat 17 people, we're going to have one extra person have a cerebral hemorrhage who didn't have one before. And this right. is certainly some of the controversy that people have talked about, about whether it's worth it or not. Exactly. I mean, huge, huge amount of controversy, not even just even in the last year with the ASAP clinical policy coming out with level A recommendations that may or may not be really reflected in what most of us would call robust literature. If, if all you needed was one good trial to have a level A recommendation, my little study on sublingual captopril would be a, there you go. <laughs> would be a level A recommendation. But I think there's also this sort of, uh, you know, sort of like urge to find something to do when it comes to these bad strokes. So there's no doubt because neurology doesn't have a lot of good treatments. Right. And so they want to they want to be able to do something. Right. Now, um, the ECAS trial was a European trial um, was done several years after that. And that extended the time. Right. The initial NINS trial was up to three hours. Right. The ECAS trial extended it out to about four and a half hours. Right. The. Um, increase in favorable outcomes was a little bit less in this case. It was only about 7.2%, and the number needed to treat was there for a little bit bigger, but it was still, it was almost 14. So you treat 14 people mm -hmm. with TPA between three and four and a half hours, and you're going to get an extra person who has a good outcome. Mm. So did ECAS really show that uh, throughout all the times of that study? They did. Yeah. Um, even early on, um, they, they, they showed a better perfusion um, and okay. a better... Uh, I think there's a lot of controversy about ECAS-3 and whether it, you know, so NINS kind of is the uh, less than three hours and maybe ECAS-3 seemed to make up to four and a half look better. Right. Uh, so There were, however, a lot of different subsequent studies that seemed to at least on a lot of people's minds solidify these findings. Right. Um, I mean, there are still some skeptics out there. We all know who they are. Right, um, right. On um, both sides. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's opinions on both sides if, for if, sure. If you listen to emergency medical abstracts, uh, sure, yeah. you, you will get one, one big contrary opinion to mm -hmm. that. But I think most people now consider IV thrombolysis is the standard of care for all strokes across the range of moderate to severe stroke severity. Mm. So I, I'm one of these uh, folks that... Um, feel that the TPA bandwagon has gotten a little out of hand on, on some level. And not that I am against TPA and not that I am for TPA. One of my major concerns is that I feel 
that we do not understand uh, completely what our hypothesis is about thrombolysing clots. And if you look at if you look at NINs, certainly the the first part of NINs was in retrospect a hypothesis generating study. Remember their their endpoint was that they were going to look for early signs of reperfusion, <clears throat> and when that didn't happen, they plowed all the data into a second study to look at you know modified Rankin scale outcomes at 90 days or whatnot. And I, I, one of the things that this paper talked about, which we haven't quite gotten into yet, is either intraarterial thrombolysis and thrombectomy. So talk a little bit about how, where that's going and what, the, what this paper is trying to say about those. Okay. Uh, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good lead-in because certainly there's data that suggests that proximal artery occlusions, either in the middle cerebral artery or the internal carotid artery, are relatively resistant to just systemic Right. TPA. And so the idea then was to go in and deliver the TPA, the clot-busting medicine, right at the site of the clot. So right. they first started doing intraarterial thrombolysis. That really doesn't seem to be that effective. Um, and certainly the rate of intracerebral hemorrhage has increased right. with using that. So right. that sort of fell all risk, off. All risk, no benefit. Yeah. yeah. Now, the next thing that people started doing was thinking about actually mechanically removing the clot. Right. And this article does actually a good job of uh, going through the three types of um, um, mechanical thrombectomy devices that they have. Right. Um, there's two older ones. There's a coil retriever, which sort of is like a little spiral thing that wraps around the clot. Right. And you eventually pull it out. There's aspiration devices where you just suck the clot out. And okay. these newer ones are the ones that are getting all the hype and all the uh, play in the media nowadays, the stent retrievers. And these, basically, you go through the clot and then inflate the stent so that you restore blood flow really quickly. And then after a while, you can actually, since you've trapped the clot in the stent, you, when you pull the stent out, you'll remove the clot with it. And so that seems to be where a lot of the attention in the literature is going for right now. So it's a satisfying concept, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> Brain, though, is a funny thing. Um, you know, lysing clots in hearts seems to be a great thing to, go, to do. Stenting clots in, in, in if To me, the further you get away from the heart, the worse all this stuff seems to work out. You think about PE, right? You know, big saddle embolus. Everybody yeah. knows what to do with that. All these little ones out there. Certainly with stroke, it's the same thing. Like, it is interesting, though, that we're, we're following the same sort of history right. with stroke that we know. Because at first, what did we do for heart attacks except give them right. morphine or nitro or whatever? Right. And then we started using IV TPA. And then we started taking certain people to the cath lab. And now it's basically standard of care. You go to the cath lab right. if you're having the acute MI. But think about, think about an MI as different from a stroke. Like I, When a person comes in with an MI... I will say this is an inferior wall MI or a septal MI or a, or a you have something hard you can look at. And I see. right. Whereas when what we don't have right now with stroke is this concept of like, well, this is a proximal MCA is going to do horribly with these, uh, you know, with these interventions. This is a very small distal MCA. It would do better with this. We're we're using scales and other things and we'll talk about this in one of the other papers i think where and, well and actually this paper addresses that also that's the last section of this paper it talks about imaging based patient selection oh right okay great right because they, they so let's talk about they, that they've started using ctas and mras 
to try to identify proximal artery occlusions with high accuracy. Because you're right. I mean, otherwise, we're just basically looking at somebody's symptoms. Right. And if you're just looking at the stroke scale, you don't know. Maybe they're hypoglycemic. Maybe they're postictal. Stroke mimics, sure. Maybe they have a brain tumor or something yeah. going on. And so you're right. With a, with a cardiac cath, you go in, you see the clot, and you know to deal with it. Right. So we're sort of getting to that part now um, with neurology. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure that in big centers... Yeah. Um, we're eventually going to get to the point where we're going to have to have a neurology team on site who can go in and cat these people if this turns out that it's going to work. Because we really need to figure out, you're right, where the clot is right. and if there's something we can do about it. I, I feel that um, this issue that we don't really understand who needs and who benefits from which intervention is stroke is the, is the essence of this huge disagreement that we have. So... These studies do lump strokes into big piles and then show bad outcomes with intracranial hemorrhage and good outcomes with some other things. But we are starting to parse out little by little what, what a clot means where in the cerebral circulation and what we should do about it. And uh, <clears throat> there is some evidence that uh, certain types of strokes have a lower bleeding rate, other strokes have uh, types of strokes have a very high bleeding rate when they're giving, you know, TPA, Alteplase. Seven um, percent is the number that keeps coming up. That's the one thing that you can uh, you can absolutely use when you're uh, consenting your patients is roughly that number uh, overall. But that is a blended average of of all the strokes. Right. To me, the worst situation is to give uh, a thrombolytic uh, to somebody who really should not get it or would not benefit from it. And so that's, I think it is very important to look at those exclusion criteria. And um, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about modified Rankin scales and what they mean and what the uh, NIH stroke scale might be for somebody who literally can't move their arm or speak is dramatically different and than somebody who has the same number who can move their arm or right. speak a little or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's always difficult when you try to take a complex system and... and you know, drill it down to one single number. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to, that number is not going to be the same for everybody. Yeah. So you would, you want to avoid a situation where somebody gets all the risk and no or little benefit. And that, I think that's going to be the EM, that is going to be the burden in emergency medicine is that, um, and I also believe, by the way, that a lot of the, you'll hear people say like, we don't give enough TPA. And it's like, I think what's happening is people are voting with their, uh, with their EMRs and they're saying like, I don't, I get TPA and all about it. I don't think this guy will benefit from it. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. I think that's you. happening every day in the in the U.S. and people are just making decisions. And I say people, docs are making decisions. Come in with a stroke. Look like you're getting slightly better. Mm, no thanks to TPA. I don't want to yeah. make that guy bleed. Why? You're yeah, right. You're absolutely right. Why make him bleed if he right. doesn't have to? All right. What's the next article? Um, so the next one is uh, was from Brain and Behavior in mm. uh, 2014. It was a it was one of your a, bound journals. Oh yeah, I, I, I read, read this in the bathroom all the time. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a comparative efficacy of different reperfusion strategies for acute ischemic stroke, and they use this interesting uh, benefit risk analysis. Um, it's um, the lead author is a gentleman by the name of um, Svigulis. 
Um, he was from various institutions in the U.S. and Europe. And they basically, again, they did a literature search, and they okay. came up with 18 studies. 13 of them were randomized clinical trials, okay. and five of them were observational trials. And what they did was they went back into those things, and they calculated two benefit-to-risk ratios. All right. The first one was the percentage of patients who only had a zero or a one on the modified Rankin scale okay. at 90 days. And then he divided that by the percentage of people who had a modified Rankin scale of six, which is death. Okay. They then did another one where uh, they did a you know a second one where they um, looked at it. It was a zero, one, or two on the modified Rankin scale. And again, compared that to death. Okay, so let's talk about that mm -hmm. because I think that EM physicians need to understand a modified Rankin scale because this is where, when you look at, for example, <clears throat> TPA, this is the argument for TPA is that you will take people to the um, holy grail of modified Rankin scale, which is one, no significant disability, right? That's somebody that can go to work right. um, and function. Or even the two. Or even two with somebody who is... might have some, still could be functional and independent. Three is the moderate disability, right? So that's some activities with um, daily living, and but they can walk unassisted, all right? So that's, that's important to realize that this is what neurologists see on the 90-day window, which is why some of the neurologists get pretty excited about trying to do something. The difference being being able to walk unassisted and, and needing assistance is a huge economic oh, and healthcare burden and a burden to the person as well. And that's the difference between a three and a four. Great. Um, so they, 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 they computed these two um, benefit to risk ratios and then they adjusted them for the NIH stroke scale because obviously the different um, studies the enrollment, you know, people may have had a slightly higher stroke scale or a slightly lower stroke scale. So they just basically did a little statistical adjustment okay. on those things. Now, it was interesting um, how they came up with this. So they found that um, the the drug with the highest benefit-to-risk ratios was actually tenecteplase, <laughs> which is a drug that none of us use. I know. and when We you, all use anaplase. When you look at the graph at this on this study, which I think is so telling uh, in this, in this uh, brain and behavior article, they have this uh, benefit to risk ratio graph. I think it's figure to three. And, um, you know, this is a podcast, so you can't see it. But up in the stratosphere is tenecteplase, uh, two studies on tenecteplase. Right. And again, it's only two studies. I think that's, that's important. That's true. And down there in the, in the weeds is NINS. Uh, right. I mean, out of place has, I don't know how many studies at this point, but we, we have a good idea of what right. that is. Right. And it, it always seems that whenever a new drug comes out, it always seems to really perform well the first time they do it. And then those sort of people start doing it, it doesn't do quite as well. So. Yeah, well, there is a tenecteplase study that didn't do that well, right? Um, there is another one that didn't do that quite that well. So... None, none of the tenecteplase studies did as poorly as uh, alteplase. Yeah. Or at least using this formula, right. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, the other thing that had really good um, benefit-to-risk ratios they computed was sonothrombolysis. Yeah. Which is an interesting new... Um, yes, we are, we are working with a company right now who's interested in doing this uh, for stroke, and... The, the benefits of this are literally that you could start it in the field. There's a device that that's portable, that is that portable and basically creates micro bubbles at the site of the clot. 
So all to be determined, all very experimental, right. but um, a lot of interest in that. Yeah, and somehow uh, the ultrasounds improve the delivery and penetration of the TPA into the clot. Well, um, think of it this way. Have you ever cleaned jewelry? No, my wife does that. Oh. <laughs> Get with the times. Everything's jewelry. To <laughs> well, you should ask your wife uh, if okay, she's I'll, ever I'll, used. I'll, I'll do that as okay. soon as I get home. Yeah. You should ask your wife if she's ever used an ultrasonic bath to clean jewelry. That's what jewelers right. do, right? They right. throw it in. They throw your, you know, your precious jewels in there. And uh, basically, and what it does is create these micro bubbles that actually break the, the dirt off. It's the same concept. Right. What's happening with all these little clots, all these little dirt particles that were breaking off from the clot? They're floating out throughout the brain. They, they go to, to be a, determined. They go to a better place. Okay, I hope so. <laughs> Other than your middle cerebral artery. I hope so. Okay, but but that's again another interesting um, mechanism, device, yeah. um, strategy that's coming up. Um, the um, benefit to risk ratios for adiplase for its TPA were lower. They were in the like the 1.1 to 2.75 range or so. Um, and then finally, when you get to the various endovascular devices, the benefit to risk ratios were all over the map. Yeah. They were a low of like 0 0.3 to a high of 2.2. Right. Um, now, I think a lot of that, again, as we talked in the previous article, has to do with they're still evolving these yeah they don't know what they're doing yet yeah yeah they're really i mean they're really feeling their way through i, I think the the feeling right now is that these are going to be great for big proximal you know right up, uh, clots or whatnot uh other interesting thing in this article i think is this uh percentage of modified rankin scores related to time the treatment of onset of symptoms which shows the um the uh, relationship uh, at about three hours how uh the uh, benefit uh, of all these studies seems to be uh, much decreased after that time period. Again, arguing very, very importantly for careful selection of patients, right. perhaps in a way that we um, we don't appreciate right even right now. I mean, even uh, you know, you, we depend on our neurology friends to look at the CT and make sure that the uh, scope of the uh, infarct size is not too big. Uh, you know, so things like that. Um, so do you, do you like the BRR? Is it a valuable tool? Is it, did they just make it up? You know, I actually, I've never heard of this before. Right. And I, I went Google searching oh, good. and, um, you know, PubMed, look, and I really can't find anybody else who's ever used this before. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe I have bad search technique, but I don't know. I, but I haven't been able to find anybody else who's used it. I will so say this, Dr. Sivigoulis is not supported by anybody who sells TPA. <laughs> I, I'm sure not. His, his conflict of in, in, interesting. Now, Professor Schellinger is, had a grant from uh, Boehringer Ingelheim and a couple of other places, and he's one of the co-authors. But the lead yeah. author appears not to have. Yeah, but, but it's, an, it's an interesting method because what it's comparing is whether you have either no symptoms or a slight disability to whether you died or not. Right. right. And so, so, so if you come up with a, you know, a, a benefit to risk ratio of two, that means you're getting two people are getting a good thing for every person who dies. But I think a lot of people would argue, like if you were in a, a category five, which is severe disability, yeah. constant nursing care, bedridden, incontinent, right. Right. that might be as worth as bad as a, as a six. Yeah, I mean, well, so maybe the denominator should be a five or a six, or maybe even a four if you want to. I was a resident when uh, NINS was, you know, happening, and uh, we called that study "Walk or Die." You know, it's basically right. uh, the concept. Um, so, 
interesting stuff. I, I, I would like to see more about BRRs. Um, I, I like the way it's sort of lined up with some of the things that I already know about it, and I found the TNK piece a little surprising, but we'll see where, where that leads. Agreed. Uh, the New England Journal article, 2013, endovascular treatment. So this was done... Or 20, what was that, 20... Yeah, it was yeah, 2013. Yeah, 2013, yeah. This was done by the Intervention... Interventional Management of Stroke Investigators, the mm -hmm. IMS-3 investigators. Right. Um, it was an international study. It was done in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and Europe. It was a phase three randomized open-label trial, so everybody knew which device they were using, right. but the outcomes were at least blinded. Okay. Um, and it was, it, it was also an evolving study as it went along. Initially, they were taking anybody who had a, a stroke scale of 10 or more okay. and putting them into the trial. Later on, as they started using CTA more for strokes, they started including people at eights or nines on the stroke scale okay. if they had a clot. So again, this is one of these, it's, it's a sort of a rolling enrollment that goes along. Okay. Now, everybody got a loading dose of TPA, and then they started the infusion on people. Right. And then they were randomized to either get endovascular treatment or the complete TPA dose. If you got endovascular treatment, they only gave you two-thirds of the TPA amount. Okay. So they gave you a, like a mini dose, essentially. Right. And they randomized them in a two-to-one ratio. So they got twice as many people going to endovascular treatment as TPA. And again, the devices, again, they had, initially when they started, there was only one device that was approved. Gotcha. As the trial went on, they added amendments and they added more devices. Right. So it's really hard to interpret what some of this is because we're mixing some older devices with some newer devices yeah. that we discussed about earlier. Right, and this is this is what where we get into what, what I think is kind of hypothesis-generating research, really, you know what I mean? Um, if you're not sure what your outcome is uh, and you kind of keep moving moving the hypothesis, you're really trying to, you're moving the, 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 the population around, what have you. you're trying to generate a hypothesis. Um, hard to draw a lot of conclusions from that. Uh, generally, it's always used to just create another study. But it is interesting. Yep. Um, they didn't find any, um, any uh, difference between the two. They actually were initially planning to enroll 900 patients. They wanted to get an effect size of about 10%, and they wanted, you know, an alpha of like 0.05 and a beta of 0.2. However, after 656 participants, they stopped the trial according to a pre-specified rule of utility that they had. Right, right. Because they were showing no difference. Getting nowhere fast. And as right. it turned out, you know, endovascular treatment, about 41% or so had a good right. functional outcome, and the TPA was about 39%. Right. So about mm, eight months ago, I think when Mr. Clean uh, study came out, I was talking to our interventional radiologist, and um, they, you know, I was like, "Are we? Is this ready for prime time? Are we ready to go?" And they were like, "Ah, we just don't feel like we know which ones really to go after." Right. Um, and so, it, it, you know, I was like, "Well, when do I call you?" They're like, oh, I'll let you know." <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't want to get involved quite yet. Well, they're worried about, obviously, for obvious reasons, right. they're worried about this intracranial hemorrhage issue, which right. is, um, you know. Well, the one good thing about this is the different safety outcomes they measured. Um, there was no significant difference in mortality right. or the rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage or the rate of parenchyral hemorrhages. However, they did have a higher rate of asymptomatic intracerebral hemorrhages right. in the endovascular group. It was actually like... 
27% versus about 19%. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was a good 8% increase or so mm-hmm. in that. Not what you want, but didn't really affect mortality per se. It didn't affect mortality. And again, you're mixing in so many different devices that right. it's unclear you know, where, where that mortality is or where that hemorrhage is coming from. Well, I think a very important thing when you look at these is to look at the modified Rankin scores um, in the comparative groups and see where the patients, you know, like look at that. If you look at that for TPA, you look at the modified Rankin scores, you start to see how uh, the effect on TPA at times can be to take people who are fours and make them threes and twos, except the ones that they make fives and sixes. (laughs) And that's basically the conundrum of, of, uh, of, of all this is, uh, you know, trying to uh, sort that out and trying to um, tell your patients what the risk is, which brings us to number, the fourth article. Right, which brings us to the last article, which is a, um, again, this was um, done by a gentleman, Daryl Flynn at Newcastle University in the UK. All right. It was in BMC Health Services Research in 2013. Interesting. And they analyzed a lot of different um, decision tools that they found. Um, they did a database search from 1996 to 2011, and they identified 26 tools, 14 of them from the UK, nine from the US, and three from Canada. And what they wanted to see was what, you know, what, what those tools offer people. Because mm. obviously, patients and physicians are faced with rapid decisions about treatments that involve trade-offs between the increased likelihood of long-term benefits right, right and the more immediate bleeding risks and consequences that we talked about, or mm. to sum it up, as you said, you walk or die. Right. Um, and so how do you communicate to that to somebody? Right. And I, I thought this was an interesting article. I don't want to really get into the weeds of all the different things. Okay, it, what, did but, they, what did they suggest? But, but their conclusions or recommendations, are, I think, are interesting. Certainly, one thing I think we all know, they say, Materials should be written at probably no higher than a fifth or sixth grade reading level. Most okay. people are just not That's going pretty to understand standard, that. Right. That's pretty standard stuff. They also said there's good evidence to suggest that graphical evidence can enhance risk perception by exploiting rapid or autonomic perceptual capabilities of the users. Mm. And this was regardless of their differences in health literacy. Mm-hmm. So showing somebody a picture, yeah. whether they have a high school education yep. or they have a master's degree, is better than just trying to explain to them yeah. you have a per- this percent versus that percent. Right, uh, unless they have a uh, hemianopsia. <laughs> but I, I, one of my favorite tools is AAEM's pictograph of the uh, 18 people before TPA and 18 people after. Right. That, that is a great pictograph. Two are green and one are black where before they were red, if I recall right. the pictograph right. So... Um, I did find it interesting that they thought there is no one way to communicate, and that's probably pretty typical of all the communications we do. We, we, we often have to explain it one or two different ways. So if you went into a room and said, um, well, I often ask the uh, third-year residents uh, when we get a um, stroke activation, I was like, tell me how you're going to, assuming the patient qualifies, how are you going to consent this person for TPA? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, I'm going to give you a drug. You'll either walk or you'll die. Uh, That's pretty rough. (laughs) Yeah, that is. Uh, You can use the numbers, right? Well, the one thing I know about this is that on average, about 7% of people have a stroke that starts bleeding. And then maybe twice that get better. Right. 
Not 100% sure about that. If I choose the right group right, it could be pretty good. If I don't do a good job of choosing who gets it, it could be basically no benefit. Um, they, they, it's very hard, and, and nobody has a pat answer. And I no. share the pictograph with them. Right. And, and one of the things they say in this article is that um, no single method is probably going to be the best for all potential users. So we should probably use maybe give some numbers and show the pictograph. Right and do a song and dance or whatever, but we have to do multiple methods right, right. of getting people to do this. Right. Demo a, a modified ranking two and four. Right. Now, you know, here's the here's an interesting thought, you know, and everybody likes to play this game. Like if you're you're having a stroke, would you take TPA or wouldn't you? And I think a, an even more interesting thought than that is what do you do now? What are your thoughts about TPA? And there's no answer to this, obviously. What are your thoughts about TPA? And then what if you really had a bad stroke and you're sitting there on the bed? You know, would you want to take that TPA? A lot of people will say, like, I'll take the TPA on a chance that I could walk because I feel like what I have now is desperately a bad outcome. And I have to tell you, my personal experience doing this with um, uh, members of my family and advising them does you do look at this uh, in a situation you say like, well, can you move your arm? You know, can you talk? Were you a person that liked to talk? Um, you know, assuming you, again, assuming you meet the criteria. So it's, it's very specific. I, I think that uh, what I did took home from this article was that there's no one way, which means that you probably have to have three or four ways. You really have to be facile with uh, consenting people. No, I absolutely. Think. Plus, you know, uh, I, I think studies have also shown in the past when you try to look at consenting people that if you talk to somebody in sitting in a room, mm. if you have this, will you take this treatment, is different from when they actually have the disease. Right. And they're looking at their future and what that means and stuff. It becomes more immediate for people. And people make different decisions than in time than they say did six months ago when they were talking about it theoretically. Well, this is great. I love it. Um, and uh, I love the fact that we're diving into this uh, controversial stuff. And the next, you know, TPA, uh, I think we find we sort of like hit uh, a, a point in TPA where you're either on one side or the other or undecided. Um, and next with these these intravascular um, and thrombectomy issues, we're starting to go down uh, yet again, as you say, you know, another path. What we'll do in the Journal Club, I hope, is actually get into the discussion about clinical vignettes and ask the residents to take all this newfound knowledge and start to make decisions about, you know, certain types of strokes and whether they would, um, whether they would treat and with, with, with what. Um, no question that the key to all this is being informed and a good reader of the literature. That's for sure. No, no, no disagreement from you on that, Ed. No disagreement about that. You have to, you have to be scanning these journal articles and figuring out what's coming up. And That's right. That's the fun of it all. Yeah. All right. Great. I was uh, enjoyed that. I appreciate that. We look forward to doing it again. Yes, and this was fun. Actually. Yeah. All right, and we'll see you at Journal Club. All right. Very good. Right, Thanks. Bye.